What's up, everybody? My name is James York, and this is the B Podcast. The story behind the name B is that I'm a hip-hop head. Comments album B is my favorite album of all time. It's a timeless album about life and stepping into who you really are. And that's what this podcast is all about, to just be. To be you, to be great, to be the best version of yourself. Over the years, I've read hundreds of books and articles on self-help and becoming the best version of myself. I've had over a thousand hours of therapy and coaching, and as I go through this personal journey of becoming my highest self, I want to invite you to join me. Together, we will learn and grow each day, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and financially, all while showing compassion and empathy to others, and having a little fun along the way. I'm no expert, but if I can learn something new and help you to grow, that's why I intend to do it. Thank you for listening to the Beat Podcast. Everybody, this is the B Podcast with James York. I got a special guest in the building, my brother Alfonso Howard. How you doing today, brother? Man, James, I'm doing well, bro. Blessed. I can't complain. How you? I'm doing well, man. Blessed and highly favored. Alfonso is the yes, is the founder of the Roseland Collective, um, an urban planning and African American community addressing the issues of our public concerns. A mental health advocate and a good brother. Um, Alfonso, can you just tell the B community a little bit about yourself and, you know, while we're on the platform? Yeah, absolutely. First off, thank you so much for, you know, having me uh, join this conversation. It's something I'm extremely passionate about. Um, A couple of years back when you and I met, we started this conversation at a mental health event. uh, And it's it's great to see just the progression and, and for us to reconnect. Uh, But for the folks um, that are curious about really our mission, the Rosen Collective is a culmination of civic engagement efforts, right? And when we say civic engagement, all the things that our communities need, proper mental health and access, um, addressing food insecurities in our our Black communities, and also the lack of financial literacy. So our hope is to uh, repurpose uh, both vacant lots uh, and... um, conduct modular construction to create these resource centers addressing those issues. So for a lot of people that need appropriate mental health care, may not be able to afford it due to insurance reasons or just don't really lack the wherewithal, where to find help. And our goal is to inject ourselves in these uh, underserved communities on the South and West side uh, and create these resources that the folks need but also having a curriculum-based program to go alongside with it. So we want to make sure we not only give access to these resources folks need, but we also educate them, which is, a, which is the second leading reason why a lot of folks lack the, um, just the wherewithal to be able to you know, support themselves is the education piece. So we really want to make sure folks feel supported. We can get them access and get them educated as well. So super excited to get this, this organization off the ground this year and, and execute on our first project. Oh man, that sounds so dope. Honestly, just everything that you're doing is is so powerful, and it is so much needed. You know, in our community, in the Roseland community. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you how did growing up in Roseland shape who you've become? Before we get into the, yeah. you know, the ins and outs of the the collective. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, for me. Um, Growing up on the south side of Chicago was uh, very, um, it, it, it was interesting in the sense, right, like I'm an 80s baby. So we grew up in the generation where we were still outside playing, 
you come in the house when the streets lights come on, you know, you, you with your friends all day. Um, so we, we had that sense of community growing up, right. Where we, we still went out, interacted. It was a community based family where your neighbors could raise you. Your teachers could put hands on you if you acting out cause your parents gave them permission. Um, so I love that about my upbringing as a child. Uh, unfortunately, I lost my father when I was six. He was shot and killed. And, you know, that really changed a lot for me because it was just my mom, who was a young mother at the time. Uh, so my mom had me at 16. She had my, my younger brother at 20. Uh, so, you know, I have a young, you know, uh, single mother. I have a younger brother who's two, losing my dad. What, did, what that did to me was it really put me in a position to – um, you know, take on this responsibility, like I need to be the man of the house, right? Which is interesting because no one really gave me that responsibility. But when you grow up in certain communities, you just feel that because the narrative of, uh, you know, black fathers not being around due to one reason or another is so prevalent that that's just a narrative, right? If the father isn't in the house, whoever's the whole oldest boy holds it down. So I took that on, man. And for a really long time, I prided myself on taking care of my mom and my brother and whatever that looked like, you know, whether that was financially, emotionally, uh, whatever the case may be. So growing up, I, I had that type of mentality, really pride myself on family. But what really changed my perspective of being from an underserved community like Roseland was when I went to high school, which ironically enough, I went to Lincoln Park. So you coming from the south side of Chicago to the Lincoln Park area on the north side, which, mind you, was really my first time as a teenager being on the north side that often. And the experience was so interesting because Lincoln Park back in 2003, um, we had such a, a big mix of kids that went to Cabrini Greens, which was still up at the time, right, because that's in a neighborhood high school. If you're in Chicago, right, whatever high school is in a certain radius, you're going to go there automatically. Then we had a ton of kids who had rich families, right? They 14, 15, pulling up in their parents' Beamers, Benzes, nothing I've never seen before. So what that did for me was it put me in a position to make a choice, right? Do I resent success and money because I didn't really come from it like that? And you got a lot of people sometimes that sit in this mindset like, well, I don't have it, so I want to take it from someone and, and get it for myself. Or, right? I took the, the other route where I, I was exposed to it and I was like, how can I get that, right? How can I start to see success and start to really take care of myself? Um, but you know, that looks different for us, right? Because there's a lot of cultures that have the luxury to be able to just focus on their success and how they show up in the world. We have to focus on surviving, right? And then thriving, which is can be absolutely difficult and sometimes impossible, it feels like, to do it at the same time, right? So um, growing up on the South Side gave me a really interesting perspective. I loved it, right? At the time when you're coming up, you don't really know how bad it is um, until you get older and you start to get context. Um, but all things considered, all the, the, the negative experiences I had still helped me find my way to um, – you know, a mental health journey I've been on for at least the last four years or so. So like growing up in that environment, help me paint the picture. You had guns, drugs, you had, you know, gangs, you had this environment. Roseland is a, yep. you know, it's a well-known community in Chicago. Um, 
one of the roughest, if not the roughest in the city, you know? How did you, besides going to Lincoln Park, navigate through the streets yep. without going down those certain paths? Yeah, I think what really stood out for me, you gotta you gotta remember, I, I lost my dad mm. that way, right? So as tra- traumatic as that may be, I've seen it turn a lot of young boys um, in the wrong direction, right? They, they typically succumb to the same thing and it's their, it's their similar demise. But for me, you know, watching my mom go through that and I think it was just maybe something innate in me that told me to like really listen to her. Um, and I wouldn't say I didn't have my run-ins growing up, right? You know, thinking you're going to join a gang or you know, getting in certain fights and certain situations where you can potentially get arrested, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, I went home to my mom who was, you know, working a number of different jobs to help take care of my brother and I. And there was always something in me like, nah, I got to make sure I do it right. And I didn't want to end up like my father. So, you know, it took a lot for me to, you know, just keep it in arm's reach, right? When I was exposed to too much, I knew how to back up and go back home or say no, right, or hang out with people that was trying to be more than their current situation or where we live. And that took a lot for me to do at a, as an adolescent, right, nine, ten years old. Um, so I think that was just a, a God-given ability, you know, to have, um, to, to have a way to be able to comprehend things like that so early to, to help me. Because, I, as I said, I was exposed to a lot of stuff. Uh, but I didn't want to, you know, go down that same path that unfortunately took my father from us because I owed it to my mom and my brother to be here to make sure they get taken care of. Mm, I love that. That's deep and that's powerful. Just the family aspect that you knew that it was your responsibility now as the man of the household to take care of your family, to hold it down. Like, I love that. It speaks power into you and who you are as an individual. Yeah. How did all of that affect your mental health early on and into your adulthood. Yeah, well, you know, even the even the the term mental health wasn't mentioned growing up, right? I think you know we come from generations of suppressing mm-hmm. um, our our fears and emotions because we've been conditioned to always be strong and that we can get through anything. And folks still like to use the history of slavery to push this narrative that black people's pain tolerance is non-existent, right? So put them through anything because they can handle it, which is furthest from the truth, right? And um, fortunately, my mom was the type of parent that would have family meetings once a month, right? Where me, her, and my brother would get in the room and just talk about like, what's going on? How are we Mm. feeling? Uh, And we would even at a very early age address and differences we had with each other. And that's powerful as a kid, right? To have that safe of a space to be able to communicate and articulate when my mom did something I didn't agree with and not get in trouble mm-hmm. for it, right? Because, you know, growing up in a black house, if you speak up for yourself, that's considered being disrespectful. Absolutely. Right? So <laughs> you got to be careful about how you say it. But my mom helped, you know, help my brother and I really learn how to walk in that light. And, and be able to express ourselves. So I think that helped me. But um, 
there are also experiences where you were reminded that as a black man, you should be stronger than what you think yeah. you are. So there were moments, right, in, you know, maybe young relationships I may have had, or um, even my mom may have subconsciously, you know, made um, certain uh, reactions that made me feel like, oh, I need to just toughen up and get through it. I, I can't, I can't have emotions, right? I don't have time for that. So you really, you do really suppress and bottle a lot of that up. And I think that's what, you know, led as I got older, right? Between my losing my father, then, you know, unfortunately I lost my grandfather in 2008 to cancer and then just lived experiences and things that happened to you. Um, I had my first, you know, panic attack and went into a state of depression in 2014. Mm -hmm. I was 23 at the yeah. time. Um, so you got to think, you know, I would say as early as six years old, that's 17 years worth of yeah. trauma that I like barely scratched the surface, right? That just decided one day to, to implode and stop me in my tracks and really like figure out what was happening. Mm. That's really interesting because I, I also went through an episode where I was having panic attacks and they hooked me up to the EKG machines. We did all these tests thinking it could be my heart because I was a little overweight at the time. Yep. And lo and behold, come to find out it was anxiety. It was depression that was like seeking mm -hmm. in through my health. And I didn't find that out until years later. You know what I'm saying? That that that, yep. that was the root cause of, like you said, all that trauma that was lived. So man, that's powerful. Mm -hmm. So how did that mental health yeah, how did that mental health journey help you to start this Roseland Collective? Yeah, so 2014 was um a really eye-opening year for me with that event uh that I experienced literally, bro. I thought I was having a heart mm -hmm. attack, right? So which is why they probably hooked you up to the EKG. And you just having heart palpitations, you can't breathe. I was sobbing uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. I actually was working at the Apple store at the time, bro. And I was on the like the just the, the middle of the sales floor and it just hit me. Went to the bathroom, went in the stall and was just like going through and I literally thought I was about to Damn. die. And it probably lasted for a few minutes. Um and at the time, you know, when you work for I work in tech, so a lot of these tech companies would have uh, a benefit called Concern EAP. Mm -hmm. So it's like a, emotional support mm -hmm. that is actually free where you get maybe up to eight sessions to talk to a therapist. And it, I knew about it. It was the first time I had ever used it. So I, I remember leaving work, getting home, calling them, and them just let me know, like, it's okay. Um, you're not alone. Like, we're going to help you through this. Just tell us what happened. Like, don't judge yourself. Like, very, um, you know, non-invasive. Non it wasn't overwhelming at all. And it felt easy to, to really open up. It was my first time seeing a therapist. Um, but looking back on it, I laugh at this now because my first therapist was this 80-year-old white woman. <laughs> and mind you, I'm living, in, I'm living in Houston, Texas at the yeah. time. So I'm in these sessions by the third session, man. I'm like, yo, she don't understand my lived experiences. She can't really yeah. relate. So the way she's trying to help me is really coming from a, a very generic state, just based on things that I'm sharing. She can't really, you know, draw in and connect with me and ask me questions that's going to evoke some type of suppressed emotion. Mm -hmm. So I was over it. I'm like, therapy doesn't work. 
it's it's stupid. People say black people don't go to therapy. I see why now. So I left it alone. Um, and then it wasn't until 2018, so four years later, I went into another state of depression. So in that year, I was going through a um, uh, a complaint case with DePaul University. I was getting my master's. I was in my capstone course, and I filed a complaint with uh, the Department of Education for my professor, who I felt was retaliating against me. I was the only black person in the mm-hmm. class, and the way he provided feedback, he wouldn't show up to office hours. So I just really felt isolated, mm-hmm. and he would fail me like, and wouldn't provide quality feedback. So I filed a complaint. This case went on for months. By the time I got a response back, I had, uh, it was three days before commencement. This was the last class I needed to pass to graduate. Three days before commencement, they informed me that they couldn't pursue my case and they dropped it. So I failed the class and ultimately couldn't graduate. Right. So that was one thing which was very discouraging. Then on top of that, I was on short-term disability at that at that time for maybe three mm. months for my lower back. So I have a, a element called spondylolisthesis where my spine like rubs against each other in the vertebrae. So I'm always in like chronic pain sometimes in my back. So here I'm off work, not getting paid what I'm used to. Um, I just found out after two and a half years of hard work, I'm not going to graduate, right, and get my master's. And um, I was just, like, going through a lot emotionally, like, couldn't really, didn't really know what my career should be. And it was just, it was just a lot. So um, went through that. And that was the first time I was like, okay, I tried therapy in the past. What other resources that are, are out there? So I started going on websites like NAMI, AFSP, mm. which is the um, uh, the Association for Suicide Prevention. Mm-hmm. Um, found Hope for the mm. Day, right, where you and I met and got to volunteer together, which is a local organization here in Chicago. And I got exposed to, like, other resources outside of therapy, right? Webinars, watching videos, going to volunteer events and meeting other yeah. people and just found these safe spaces to talk. But what something came to me where I was like, okay, I'm on this journey. I can't be the only one that needs to know how to take that first mm. step. So that was the first time I got involved in a community around mental health. And my experiences over the last four years, you know, volunteering with a number of different organizations, having a you know, hundreds of conversations, right? Working on a number of projects at corporate companies and on my own is that our people in the black community like need so much more, right? We need culturally, we need culturally specific resources and not just this generic approach of mental health and, you know, what this could look like for everybody. Like it definitely has to be culturally, you know, specific to where do you live, So taking my background and things I experienced as a child and just recently with my mental health journey, you know, I was toying with this idea of like starting an organization to solely focus on mental health for the black community. And then as I started to really lean into this and have conversations, these ideas started to grow. And fast forward, I first, you know, officially legally started my business 
uh, December of 2020. But what I've learned over this last year is, you know, giving myself some grace and not rushing and getting something out there for the sake of saying I own my yeah. own business. I really sat on it, had conversations with close circles, mm-hmm. other thought leaders and people I respected in these spaces. And I wanted to add what I'm passionate about from a professional standpoint uh, behind what I'm passionate about when it comes to my community. So I say all that to say, you know, we wanted to start doing more project services in the black community to not only um, create our own resource centers, uh, for example, like I mentioned, a, a mental health center, right, where we can get folks to learn about, you know, triggers and how to communicate to someone that may be on the onset of having an yeah. event, but also help them walk away with, you know, resources and things that can help them. Another example, right? A food co-op. So often you see these co-ops where folks in the community benefit financially, yeah. right? But like, how long does that sit with the people in the community? If you think of a food co-op in the black community, the way I first see it is not only access to food they, they should be eating, but we should educate them on how to prep foods and what they should be eating, how to cook a lot of the foods that they like today with healthier alternatives, right? Like you can put a whole foods in the middle of the mm-hmm. ghetto, but that's not gonna stop people from buying the same processed yeah. foods that they enjoy, yeah. right? So that's two of the biggest things that create food deserts is lack of access, right, and education. So we want to execute on those type of projects and really give our communities what they need. But in addition to, we want to offer project management services to organizations that share our mission. So if you had an event or maybe you had a resource center of your own, your your organization was looking to open and it supports folks with you know, mental health and giving them access to, you know, maybe uh, physical fitness, right? Like we want to help you get that project off the ground by offering our services from start to finish, right? Documentation, process, um, making sure that you have all the right um, resources involved to execute, helping you manage the budget and getting that project off the ground. So that's really kind of how we get from uh, you know, focusing on, on one single idea to really uh, helping create a pipeline of resources for communities that need it and making sure that we're looking at the right data to give the folks that's going to be, uh, to give the folks what they need that's going to make the biggest impact. I love that. I love that it's a one-stop shop and it's a it's a starting place for someone's mental health journey and getting them on the right track and educating them and getting them into the right hands to deal with their issues because so many of us in the black community have issues that we don't even know underlying issues, generational issues that have been passed down. Um, and not just mental, it could be physical as well. So that person may be able to point them in the direction of a doctor or a dietitian or someone else that can help them in that, that realm. And you mentioned cultural competency, you know, having the, the older, the 80 year old Mm -hmm. white woman, she not understanding where, we come from yeah. not understanding anything about the environment, the the struggles. Um, I I preach that all the time, especially when I'm telling younger guys to get into therapy. You know, find the right therapist for you. It's like mm-hmm. dating. You might not find the right woman on the first pick. You know, you got to date around a little bit. Got to see what exactly. you like. And yep. you know, when you find that person, and that person is culturally competent to what you can can express in your sessions, then it's nothing that's it, nothing will be the same. 
because you'll have that open field right. to be yourself, to be transparent. And then you'll have a mirror that can look back at you from a bird's eye view and tell you a different perspective. Yep. Yep, I, I agree. I want to comment on one thing you said, like really vetting and just it's okay to try different mm. methods, different therapists, because I'm now on my mm-hmm. third therapist. My first one was, you know, uh, a senior white woman. My second one was a uh, mid 30 black woman, right? Because that, I had that experience at, at the next point of my life around 2018. I'm like, you know what? Like, if there's anybody, right, that can mm-hmm. nurture and create a space for you to confide in and to really have your back, mm-hmm. that's a black woman, right? And I had the experience of that being raised by one. So I was under the impression that this was going to be the absolute best experience for me. And it started off that way, right? But unfortunately, what happened was I was dating someone at the time who uh, who's a, a social media influencer. So extremely popular. A lot of folks know them by name and face. And I purposely did not share that information of who I was dating in my therapy yeah. sessions with her. In the event, right, there was a connection. I didn't want that. I didn't want yeah. any bias yeah. in our sessions. So I would explain my experiences in a way with like not a yeah. lot of detail. But then there was one session with my therapist put two and two together and realized yeah. who I was dating. And of course, that bias set in when she was like, what? Like, no, you have to stay oh, with wow. this person. This is something like this person is wow. bad. Like, you know, they're this, that, and the third. And I was just like, <laughs> did you not hear what I shared with you? Like, we're we're having some indifferences. Like, I understand you're a fan. I get that. That's cool. I respect it. But like, you all bias aside, like, you got to help yeah. see my perspective. And I just feel like it clouded some judgment. So it made me extremely uncomfortable. And I ended up, I, I stopped going because COVID mm-hmm. had happened. So my last session with her was like January mm-hmm. of 2020. And as you know, two months later, the pandemic happened. So for that time period, I was really going back and forth with myself. Like, do I go back to her? Do mm-hmm. I even tell her what happened? Should I just keep it to myself? And um, around the time I was still on social media. So I was asking people on Instagram, like, what do I do? And, you know, a number of folks were like, you should tell her she deserves to know. And there were more folks that was like, just forget it. Like she already made up her mind when she yeah. responded. She should yeah. have been professional from the start. Just move on. So I ended up moving on. Um, and now I have uh, a black mm-hmm. male therapist, which has been extremely profound because it's rare to have black men that create a safe space for you to, to express your emotions. And for them to validate and affirm mm-hmm. how you feel and be able to like help you navigate that, right? Far too often, we approach each other with ego, bravado, right? Who's the biggest alpha male in the room? And that does us a disservice because it, do- it doesn't allow the emotion mm-hmm. to set in, right? That's all aggression. It doesn't allow the right emotion, right, to set in where we can have open conversations and be vulnerable. Um, but now that I have that, it's done wonders for me being much more vulnerable. Um, one thing that'll really help us in our communities is having greater normalcy, right? Like making it normal to talk about, yeah. I go to therapy. 
making it normal to talk about like, hey, let's do a cleanse this week and mm-hmm. eat healthy. Let's juice. Right. And those are things people should be seeing and hearing in their communities. They shouldn't have to go to, you know, outside uh, their, their neighborhood to be able to get access to these things. So um, that's that's really important is, is just being able to find what works for you, taking the time to look into that and and, and building a plan for yourself and just um, always feeling free to change it if you need to. Man, that's so dope. There's so many so many gems in there. You know, just even what you said about making it cool to talk about therapy. That's one thing that I try to do on this podcast is making learning about different things that we might have not grown up talking about cool. And whether that's um, financial literacy, whether that's talking about trauma, whether that's talking about, um, you know, therapy, you know, making that cool to talk about and just and not being fake or phony with it, but just being ourselves, you know, and, and sharing those learning experiences. Right. Yep. But I, I want to shift for a moment. And it was alarming the statistic that you had shared on your social media that African Americans, about 70% of the total food desert population. And you mentioned that, um, you know, we're talking about the Rosen Collective. Mm-hmm. How does not having a access to quality foods impact mental health and just the journey of the individual? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a uh, it's a it's a new newly defined topic of um, health research called nutritional mm. psychology, right? So I learned this back in I want to say 2019, mm. where um, what you eat has a direct correlation to your mood and behavior. I, I'm pretty sure it's safe to say in 2022 that most folks would believe that's true right so at least at least there's a baseline agreeance that yes right how many times have we eaten some really greasy food right and you feel you know not only so full but you to the point Mm -hmm. you're sick and then the itis sets in you want to sleep now you're sleeping on that full stomach right food is should Mm -hmm. provide energy right food is meant to energize you so you can continue to do your, you know, just normal, humane uh, um, actions, right? For you to be able to, you know, properly think and concentrate, for you to walk, for you to be able to move things, right? So, of course, it's fair to say there's a direct correlation. But doing even more research, right, your gut health is priority number one for so many different reasons, right? If you have proper gut health, your core is going to be enabled and that helps with so many different mobility skills especially coming from a person that has a mm-hmm. spine ailment right like my core is absolutely mm-hmm. important and that's what i had to prioritize in in order to lessen the pain right um, but also your gut sends signals to a receptor in your brain based on the nutritional value of the food that you're eating So if you live in a food desert, right, or some folks properly like to call it food Mm -hmm. apartheid or food insecurity, if you live in these areas that that are played with, you know, fast food places, um, bodegas, corner stores, gas stations, liquor stores, we're going in there and we're buying overly processed food, right? The chips, the candies, the, the cookies, 
all the all the fast food, right? And what that's doing is is not providing the right nutritional value to your body. It's still going to tell your stomach you're full, but it's not feeding everything that's going to help you mm. concentrate. It's going to help mm. you get to sleep. It's going to help you have energy, and that's why you need to supplement that with things that are good for you, right? Your yeah. leafy greens, certain you know, veg- other vegetables, etc. So I say all that to say it's going to be extremely. Um, it would be ill will to tell everyone in the local black community, you got to stop eating everything you eat <laughs> yeah. and only eat healthy. Yeah, that you're there. They're going to be work. like, what? <laughs> right? And the first thing, you're gonna, it's not going to work, right? Like, they're so used to feeding mm-hmm. their kids Happy Meals and like, it's it's affordable, right? If I go buy all these, and they're under the impression because I do think there are ways to get access to these healthy foods much more affordably and we'll talk about Mm -hmm. that i'm sure but um there is a direct correlation so you have to you have to first know that what you eat is absolutely going to impact your physical and mental health and um it's all about moderation right i tell people there's no point in depriving yourself but but it's moderation Mm -hmm. starts somewhere but i truly believe that we can absolutely easily address the lack of access issue by putting more of these community gardens, food co-ops, even your, your corporate chains like a Whole Foods uh, in the local black communities. But we owe it to community members to also educate them to make sure that they're buying what they need and um, they have a plan, right? Let's make it easy for them to go back home and making sure not only themselves, but their kids are eating healthier options early in life right so they're not um they're not experiencing any underlying conditions that unfortunately has been the the true source of a lot of the people we've lost due to covid right so it's really important to understand that connection and start to educate yourself on proper gut health and the things that's going to really help you um, you know, really up your your physical health. In I that agree, hundred percent. Um, I saw the change within myself when I started to meal prep for the week, and I started to cook for yep. myself. Um, even my appreciation for food and my attitude. You know, mm-hmm. I was better at my my career, better at working out. Everything, you know, focus wise yep. was better. Um, and implementing drinking more water as well. You know, that's something I think a lot of us mm-hmm. overlook mm-hmm. because we've grown up with the juices, the, the high fructose corn syrup, sodas, yeah. um, not having a proper, yep. you know, our body is made up of 70% water. So is the earth. So getting that into us as well, mm-hmm. you know, it, it all comes with proper nutrition. So I love that. I agree. I agree, man. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where the the more you you practice, and like I said, going back to normalizing this, right, and making it easier for for folks and and talking about it, I saw a change in myself as well. I'm really big yeah. on fasting, um, and it's helping people paint that picture, right? So you know, really showing that you're closer to trying these things than you think. Like, there's a lot of people in the black community. I believe the statistic is roughly around um, just north of 90% of black folks that are experiencing a Mm. mental health event, their first course of action is Mm. going to church, right? And, you know, a a lot of people that are religious, even in the Bible, it talks Mm. about fasting. And, you know, we do that once a year around Easter. So we're adapt to these things. We just have to make it 
normal behavior, right? You don't have to eat every day, right? Your body could survive for a few days um, without, without certain consumption. So it's, it's okay to, you know, give your body a break for maybe a few hours or maybe one day you, you know, eat more of the fruits and vegetables and, and, and one bigger meal, right? And really just um, knowing all the resources that's out there. If you want to go the more, you know, Western route, talk to your doctor, ask them what options you have, do a physical, get some blood work done, right? So they can check your mm-hmm. cholesterol, your liver, kidney. Uh, and if you want to go the more Eastern route, right? My family's part Thai. My mom is actually half Thai. So we do a lot of holistic, natural remedies. Um, huge fan of mm-hmm. Dr. Sebi. So like there are so many different ways to make sure you take care of your body. Um, you just have to find what's right for you and, and just, you know, try it and stay consistent. And you'll you'll be surprised at how much it'll, it'll benefit. Absolutely. I love that. And switching gears one more time, I wanted to talk about the medium income in Chicago. So amongst whites right now, it's about 70,000 compared to 56,000 for Asians, 41,000 for Latinos. And at the last, we're... 30,000 for blacks in Chicago right now. What does that statistic tell you about the wealth and income gap in Chicago? And what do you think are some of the things that are causing that? Yeah, I think I saw a statistic as well that the um, average uh, wealth for a white household has tripled mm-hmm. 400x right in the last 50 years where ours continues to decrease right and i think there's a uh there's a a number going around that uh you know in the next 20 years our the average wealth for a black household is going to be zero right so we're we're losing especially for the largest group that's contributing to the economy it it's scary to see that we're not accumulating wealth right and what's what's happening is we've still um have involved ourselves on traditional school systems that only creates workers right where as you learn about this country they don't incentivize employees they incentivize business owners that create things that will continue to contribute to the economy. I read a really good book last year called Mm. Tax-Free Wealth. And what I learned from this book was the government is not only going to incentivize, but you're going to get extreme tax breaks if your business falls in one of the four sectors, right? So that's creating housing or jobs, right? So if you're doing any type of real estate development, if you have, um, a, a, a business that's going to create jobs and hire folks, um, you're going to get incentives and you're going to get tax breaks. If you um, work in agriculture, so if you're creating farms or you're doing any type of farming or if you're creating any type of food source, and then lastly, infrastructure. So if you do anything in electricity, energy, like those are the things that yeah. keep the economy moving that you're going to get incentivized for. So I, I, I say that to people that are watching and listening to this, like if you have a if you have a passion and you feel that it's within you to create a business behind that passion, like see if it has any connection or alignment in those four areas and watch the the doors that are, that will open 
and the conversations you will be able to have to be able to really take your business to the next level and start to create opportunities for that wealth to accumulate, right? Because now you're keeping more of your revenue. Now you can invest. Now you can benefit from living off investments. Those are conversations we didn't have as often as children. And now we, you know, we all talk about generational wealth and, you know, breaking generational curses. Um, but we also have to know how these systems work. You can't be mad that Trump only spent $750 in taxes yeah. if you don't know the game. You can only be mad at yourself if you know the game and you ended yeah. up paying 40% on your on your money, right? So I think we just need to, to – and I think another thing that really stops a lot of folks from going out and starting businesses and really talking about finances and wealth and success is we look down on that, right, because we feel as if we all can't have access society has painted this picture that is not enough for all black people, right. To have access to success and live within their mm. means and be happy. And I think that yeah. is completely untrue. Right. So once you take that mindset, cause money isn't real, it's the energy behind it that allows things to happen for you. Right. It's energy. That's it. Like people are so, you know, connected to the piece of paper, right. They don't understand how debt works, right? And how taxes work and how you use that energy in your favor. So you educate yourself on how these systems work and you lean into it and you benefit from it. Um, then you can start to address the fact that, okay, if society is saying that the average wealth is going to be zero for black household, how do I prevent that from my family? Right. I soon want to have a family of my own. I can't just sit and anticipate social security or, that my, my paycheck every two weeks is going to create a legacy for me. Like, no, I have to create something that will live past my namesake that will give my kids opportunity, right, to have access, to not be as stressed if they want to go to school or continue being an entrepreneur, whatever the case may be. I want them to have the option. And I think that's, you know, what drives me is seeing that and hearing those figures, right? Like, what am I going to do for my family and make sure I'm in a position to help them first? And then how can I help my community just by, you know, sparking these conversations, creating platforms for folks to get engaged and access to information that can help them. Um, but again, like I said before, I'm also big on mm -hmm. like these programs, right? And create some type of curriculum based approach where folks can take something away but they have a responsibility, right? Like you have to take some action, right? Post this conversation to really demonstrate that you want this, right? Um, and I think that's gonna help create some accountability so we can make sure that that doesn't happen, um, that folks do have Absolutely. access. Absolutely, that access well. is so important. It's so paramount to that. Um, you know, yesterday we celebrated MLK Day and it was a, another alarming statistic yep. that Blacks had more wealth in the 1960s when he was alive and um, rallied for the Voters' Right Act than we have today. And, you know, that was during segregation yep. and people getting hosed. But Blacks still maintained more wealth in the household mm -hmm. then than now. And, you know, that that makes me feel really bad, you know, um, that they were up against so much. And, yeah. and could accomplish so much. And we have so much technology and, and, and so many opportunities 
now and right. we're I feel like we're squandering it, honestly. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have my I have my thoughts, of course, like as we come post uh you know, the the abolishment of slavery and folks integrating, right? And migrate well, more so migrating from the South North and just trying to really adjust to this 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 new reality, right? Um, of course that didn't racism never went away even till this day, right? So folks still operated in a way that prevented black people from seeing the same successes as their as their white counterparts, right? Read a really started reading a really good book called Color of Law, and it talks about how the housing system was created in a way to keep black folks out, which is the straightest yeah. line yeah. to wealth, right? We talked about that home ownership. A lot of folks have their their thoughts on it, which is fair. I think every opinion is important, but it's safe to say it is it is a way to accumulate wealth. Um, because uh, of the value increase of properties over over the years. So um, prior to uh, the Civil Rights Act, right? So you think early 60s to that point, folks were, Black people weren't thriving in America, um, you know, uh, in a connected way with everyone else. But in our own communities, yeah. we were thriving, right? We had our own hospitals, yeah. our own landing strips at airports. We had our own farms. We had our own businesses. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of masonries. Like, we were we were doing really well. Right. Think of Black Wall Street, right? So once the Civil Rights Act was enacted, that allowed us mm-hmm. to integrate anywhere, Right. So that really made it difficult. And it really made a lot of black people feel, well, I want to go to the suburbs because if you're successful in this country, meaning if you're white in this country, that's what you do. You go to the suburbs, you get a home, you get a car, Mm -hmm. you work at a factory. Right. Um, And I think that's what created some really difficult experiences for us. Um, And it forced us out of staying together. Right. We wanted to integrate so much. You see it now, right? Whatever society tells us is success, black people are um, do a really good job at finding the means to um, consume what we think is successful, right? The latest cars, the latest clothes, the latest jewelry, whatever the case may be. And again, I'm not shaming anyone, right? To each his own. But what I will say is I think that's, um, I think that's predicated based on integration in the mid sixties where folks wanted to do things white people were doing and what was seen as successful to fit in, right? And we've normalized black people having certain successes that we don't really look at other ways to really help each other. Or, you know, if a black person feels, Hey, I have this business, I have this idea mm-hmm. that's really gonna help people, um, we don't know how to support, right? We tell them, ah, that's not a good idea or that won't, that don't make sense. That won't happen. But we are really eager to make sure our, our young boys can play basketball and get in the league. Or if they're good with their words or when they, they're in the streets, they're in a position to tell a better, better story as a, as an artist, right? As a music artist. And again, I think it's, I think it's amazing that a lot of, you know, young black people can make it out of their circumstances and be successful as music artists and as athletes. 
but those are anomalies. Like that's not normal, right? Like so, but we make it easy that that's in everyone's arms reach, right. which is not the case, right? So we have to start to let our young kids know there's other ways to be successful, to be happy, to take care of your family. And I think that starts with what conversations are we having at home, right? Like, are we normalizing and allowing our kids to express themselves? What do you like? Helping them find passion and try new things. Are we, as parents, setting a preset path because we think it's going to benefit us? Or maybe we're projecting what we wanted to do, so now they're perpetuating our dream that we can make happen. Um, and I think those approaches are unfair. I've seen it happen, it, you know, I haven't directly experienced it, but I do think it's something that we we need to think about to help these young kids grow up and be much more expressive in the things that they want to do and tying, right, an opportunity to make money from it. We should not be ashamed for being passionate about something and wanting to make money for it. Like, why do black people always have to give discounts? Or why do we have to give stuff away for free, right? Like, no, you should feel every right and you should be compelled to have a business that's going to generate money so you can take care of folks, so you can mm -hmm. create jobs for people like you. And I don't think as, you know, outsiders, we should look down on people for doing that. And it happens too often, which oh, is unfortunate. Sure. Like, I was going to ask you um, why is wealth and inequality so tied together? But I think you answered that with that last statement. Just um, in just speaking about you know, the conversations at home and us coming from poverty and, you know, how success is so tied to what we have, you know, and, and how we have so many other opportunities to be successful, but we choose those different paths. So I appreciate you for answering that. What yeah, do you think absolutely. the top three areas that the black community needs to address to move forward? Yeah, I think it's, um, the the three I mentioned before, right, is really the big three, mental health, food insecurity, and financial literacy. If you think about it, it's really kind of the trifecta of the disadvantages our communities have been plagued with, right? And I don't think they're mm -hmm. mutually exclusive, right? We can absolutely work on all of these, um, some at the same time, right? We just talked about what you eat and your mental health, right? Those are our conversations we can have collectively. And um, we can also start to talk about, well, as we improve our overall health, how does that show up in our jobs, right? In school, so we can create a, a, a clearer path to, uh, to a high earning job or a successful opportunity. So I think if we start to have more conversations around those things, which are happening, right? And I love to see, you know, celebrities pushing this, um, uh, really pushing this message around mental health. And you see so many organizations uh, like Chime, right, partnering with 21 Savage to talk about um, mm. finances, right? Whatever creative way these businesses need to do to get in front of the right people, I'm for it. Um, what I'm not for is folks that are in these communities as opportunists. Right. Like yeah. you want to get in mental health because it's the hot thing to do. And then you want to yeah. charge people to listen to them, express themselves. It's just yeah. some things that I understand. Right. I know that can, can probably sound a little um, contradicting to what I said before, but it's like, I feel like if you have so many resources that are free, 
right? You got to read the room, right? If you have resources today that talks about how you can approach a conversation if one of your close loved ones are on the onset of having a mental health event, like if there's hundreds of resources for free, like instead of charging folks for the same resource, why not take all of that and filter it for the people that you're connecting with, right? Why not, instead of taking this pre-built talk script that doesn't sound like how you and I would talk, like read it and then filter it and have a conversation in a very natural way that feels authentic and then run that, right? Like record it and share that out with people. I just think there's ways that we can also, you know, make money, make an impact, but doing it the right way, right? Like I saw myself down that path where I wanted to do some, you know, mental health programs, but I really, it didn't sit well with me thinking like, do I want to charge for this? Right. So I had to really sit with myself and say, well, how can I still create a living and and make an impact? And, you know, Mm -hmm. I've been passionate and been working in project management for a little bit from a sales perspective. So it made sense for me to create project management services in the community to help folks make it easier for them to execute on their mission. So, yeah, I think if we address those three things and we normalize conversations, right, whether that's in your current career of talking about how much money you make, right, and being open Mm -hmm. about salary, or if that's making sure that, you know, folks can walk in their community and and have another option, right, of something that's going to be good for them, and just building, building the communication and having the conversations, will really go a long way. And it's it's starting today. And, and I just think that we all have to do our part and making sure that we can we can continue that. So I agree so much with that big three, you know, mental health, financial literacy and having adequate food sources. So I agree with that 100 percent. And as, yeah, we, absolutely. as we begin to land here, I want to give you an opportunity to plug your social media, um, plug the website for the Roseland Collective um, and anything else that you have going on business-wise that you want the people to know, um, how they can link up with you, follow you, support you. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. So uh, ironically enough, I'm coming up on one year not being on social media, which I'm personally really proud of. (laughs) I think that is extremely foreign uh, nowadays. so we are, uh, as an organization, we are kind of revamping, you know, our website. We're uh, repackaging some new services and are going to have those on the website uh, within the next month. Um, but as of today, you can still visit www.theroseland, and that's R-O-S-E-L-A-N-D, collective.com. And you can drop your email. That way you'll get updates when we do um released a new site and put some services on there um today like i mentioned we're in our embassy uh and when i say we this is actually all me Uh, i'm a one person show today so if there's anyone that is uh willing and interested to maybe connect and have a conversation about partnering together and sharing some resources um uh i'm you know open to you know, collaborating with some folks in the construction space. Uh, and also if uh, any, you know, Black-owned architects out there, because I mentioned we want to build these resource centers, but we're 
We would like to do modular construction, which is much more dynamic, mm. where we can change it uh, as needed. And we got some really cool ideas we think will um, get folks excited about these type of resources. Uh, and also just folks in the local community, right? Organizers, um, you know, uh, youth counselors, folks that are in the education space. Like, I'm, I'm open to any and every conversation to help our people. Uh, like I mentioned, we'll have the new website up uh, the top of February. Uh, we're going to release some services to not only, um, you know, help nonprofits on the south and west side of Chicago, but other organizations that would like to get there, respect the projects off the ground, uh, and, and really provide some help in that, in that area. Uh, concurrently, as we're, you know, um, acquiring lots and working with partners to, to get some of these centers off the ground. So I'm, I'm hoping by the time we release our, uh, our updated website next month that we have announcements around the first project. Like I mentioned, we're having some conversations behind the scenes about what that could look like, but more to come. Um, please feel free to connect with me. Uh, we'll have all the social channels back live, uh, maybe sometime over the summer. Uh, I got to get reacclimated. But um, in the meantime, just check out the website, theroselandcollective.com. Drop your email. We'll have some updates soon. And uh, man, I'm just grateful to to have the space to be able to share this. So James, thank you again. This was, this was absolutely um, great brother, whatever I could do to support you um, as black men, we have to continue showing up for each other, putting all ego aside um, and, and really making sure that, you know, we're, we're shoulder to shoulder out here because it's, it's strength in numbers. So uh, of course I extend any support and help for you and whatever I can do in that regard. And uh, let's continue building from there. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I appreciate that. And before you go, you know, I always like to give my roses to people while they're here. You know, I appreciate you. You know, I appreciate you tapping into the B community to sharing your vision with the Rosen Collective. I appreciate you being so vulnerable to come on the podcast and share your past, your present and what you want to do in the future. And you always been a genuine brother. When we met, I could feel the energy in you, you know, we met at a volunteer event. So that told me what type of brother you were off the back. So I just want to say, I love yeah. you, bro. And we got to tap in in 2022, um, you know, meet up, you know, after this pandemic and stuff is, is, is over with. Um, but I just love what you're doing and I want you to keep going. Uh, I know sometimes it can be hard with the work that you're doing. Um, you don't always see the glory, but at the end of the finish line, you'll get that. So love that, man. That's it, brother. Man, love. I appreciate that, bro. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, most definitely. And that's the B podcast for today. Everybody, y'all know what y'all can do. Um, catch every episode every Thursday. I see y'all next time.